If you came looking for a light pep talk uh, this morning, you're not getting one. Um, and uh, it's in the Bible. We will uh, preach it. Last week we began looking at one of the key warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And from verse chapter 5, verse 11 to 6, verse 3, the people were warned that they had become dull of hearing. They had seemingly stopped caring much for doctrinal truth, and they'd become spiritually immature. And all the great teaching about Jesus being a great high priest who brings us to God was put on hold for this warning. And at the start of chapter 6, they get told, they need to go on to maturity. You need to start eating solid food, not milk, and I'm going to give you some solid food. And today we come to the second part of that warning, and it is tied to the first warning. And this this warning that we're looking at today, which is in verses 4 uh, through to verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 6, is the danger of apostasy. Right? Apostasy meaning falling away from Christ, renouncing the faith. Right? I, I, I don't. I, I thought about this a lot. I don't really want to do a show of hands on this, but I'm going to assume in this church, ninety plus percent of you that are Christian know someone, have a friend, a family member someone close to you that you care about deeply, that has professed faith in Christ, walked for a time, and then walked away and renounced it all. Is that fair? Is that fair? That makes this incredibly practical. And I'm sure a number of you, and you can admit it, have considered doing the same yourself. That makes this incredibly practical for another reason. So this is a difficult, difficult text. And once again, as I say, we walk through the book of this Bible, we walk through this letter to Hebrews, we must deal with what we find. And that's why I like to preach this way as, as, as a main diet, because it forces you to look at difficult passages. But sometimes those difficult passages are the most helpful ones. I want to read a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great uh, English preacher. He says this, I can definitely say after some 35 years of pastoral experience that there are no passages in the whole of scripture which have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than the passage in Hebrews 6 verse 4 to 8 and the corresponding passage in Hebrews 10:26 to 29 large numbers of christians are held in bondage by satan owing to a misunderstanding of these particular statements. I do not say that these are the two most difficult passages in the Bible. I do not regard them as such. But I do assert that they are passages that the devil seems to use most frequently in order to distress and to trouble God's people. End quote. I completely feel that 
after uh, spending time in this text. And I read that quote as a reminder for us to be careful, and for all of us this morning to be careful, because the purpose of this text is not ultimately to discourage and depress sincere Christians. That's not its point. Many Christians have very tender consciences, and when they come to a passage like this, it throws them into a place of discouragement and doubt and agonizing about whether they actually have evidence of salvation, and they wonder whether they themselves have fallen away. As what we will see from next week onwards, the point is not to discourage, but to warn and then to encourage. And we see that from verse 9 onwards. This passage is meant to attempt to strengthen rather than to hit and destroy their assurance of salvation. So, a summary of this text for you. It says, the writer warns that some who have identified as Christians become dull of hearing and fall away but shares his hope that the Hebrew Christians have a genuine faith and will persevere to the end. That's what this is about. All right, let's read the Word of God, verse 4 to 8 of Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For land has drunk that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the word of God. And I want to make very clear, you look at verse 9, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Right? Here's the warning. We feel sure that this is not talking about you. Okay? It's helpful. This warning does not appear in a vacuum. I'm going to read more than I usually do because I must be careful myself. This warning does not appear in a vacuum. It has a context. And part of the context that we get in the whole letter to the Hebrews is that many of these Christians, the Jewish, predominantly Jewish Christians, are considering returning to Old Covenant Judaism and abandoning their distinctly Christian understanding of the faith. They're thinking of going back to the temple, they're thinking of going back to sacrifices, they're thinking of going back to priests, they're thinking of going back to ceremonial laws, and all those things were not bad, but they existed only for a time, and their purpose was to point to Christ. And that gives us some really helpful context for the warning passage. Because at the end of chapter 5 it says you're dull of hearing. I.e. you're not really paying attention and able to receive the teaching that shows how much 
better Jesus is than anything else. So he talks about Jesus as high priest. He stops. He warns them. Then he encourages them. And then he goes back to talking about Jesus as the high priest from end of chapter 6 and 7 onwards. So if you get your context right, if you understand that, your chance of messing this up and misunderstanding this passage goes right down. Right? So verses 4 to 6, there's a warning against apostasy. And then in verse 7 and 8, there is an illustration of the warning. Alright, let's go to verse 4 to 6. I think, for those of you that are in uni, this is going to be like a school day. Okay, but it's good for your soul, this one. Okay, Um, I think the illustration that is in verse 7 and 8 is so incredibly helpful in protecting against wrong interpretations of this passage. And I hope by the time we get there, your eyes will be like, oh, I get it, I get it. Okay, But we'll start with the warning itself. It says in verse 4, it says 4. Okay? That's immediately tying it to something else. For it is impossible. It's tying it to the previous verse, which says, If God permits, we will do this. Which is tying to the first verse of chapter 6, which is, let's go on to maturity. So what he's saying is, he is hoping that they will go on to maturity. And he has great hope that God will allow them to go on to become mature Christians that persevere to the end. But he must warn them that the dullness of hearing that they're displaying can then lead to falling away and going into full apostasy. Five characteristics are mentioned in verse 4 and verse 5. They describe a kind of person or a kind of people who are then said to have fallen away. Right? Do we see those? Do we see those things there? Right? Once being enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, and then have fallen away. There's a phrase there. It says, having once been enlightened. And in some early translations of the Bible, it basically says, have been baptized. Right? That's what it means. This is they've come to an understanding of the gospel, and then they've been baptized, and then they've fallen away. This is describing some people who have clearly claimed to be Christians, clearly had various forms of spiritual experiences, they've sat under the word, they've probably received answers to prayers, maybe they've uh, spoken in tongues or something like that, maybe they have some evidence of sorrow over their sins, and then it says they have fallen away. That causes a lot of problems. Right? That's why this causes a lot of problems. Because people look at this and they go, is this a Christian? Sam Storms asked a very good question, or a series of questions on this. He says, is it possible for a person to experience some form of spiritual enlightenment, to taste spiritual blessings, to partake in the Holy Spirit, and yet never know Jesus in a saving way? 
And he says, I believe the answer to this question is yes. Yes. And I think the illustration in verse 7 and 8 really helps make that point. It says, it is impossible. It cannot be. It is impossible. What's impossible? You've got, it is impossible, and then you've got those five things. Take them out of the way. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's what this is saying. It's a big, long, run-on sentence, and we don't tend to handle those very well. Right? It is impossible to restore or renew them again to repentance. There's one group in church history that handled this text in a particularly horrific way. It's a group in the early uh, third century, and they're called the Novatians, right? Like kind of Novus, uh, Novus, um, Novatians, right? And they believed from this text that if you fell into any kind of large sin, adultery, uh, you murder someone, um, you steal something, you do any kind of large sin, you had fallen away, and there was now no hope for you. You were excommunicated from the church, regardless of your repentance or not, and there was no hope of ever being able to return to salvation. They based that off this passage. And I think that is a horrible, horrible reading of this text. What this all hinges on is what does it mean to fall away? What does it mean to fall away? The Novations viewed it as commit any kind of bad sin. You've fallen away. Right? I can just imagine the absolute hypocrisy that must have abounded in that church as everyone hid their sin from everyone else, petrified of being found out to be a sinner. Calvin on this text says, The knot of the question is in the word, fall away. But the apostle speaks not here of theft or lying or murder or drunkenness or adultery, but he refers to a total defection or falling away from the gospel when a sinner offends not God in some one thing, but entirely renounces his grace. The English Puritan John Owen says, Falling away must consist in a total renunciation of all the constituent principles and doctrines of Christianity. Okay? Falling away means, I'm done. I have no interest in this anymore. And so for these people, rejecting Jesus Christ and going back to Judaism would count as falling away. It would count as falling away. Rejecting Jesus and becoming a pagan, an atheist, an agnostic, uh, whatever it is, that would count as well. Now some people point out, and they rightly say, it does not appear like the people in verses 4 and 5 were lost. And I think that, that is a good point. They did not appear to be lost until they fell away entirely. And that's true. This is someone who has professed faith in Christ, been baptized, but then whether it's slowly 
But quickly, they fall away. And they say, no more. So some people, here's the temptation, here's the where the big debate then comes in. Some will want to say, before these people fell away, they were definitely saved, definitely justified, declared right, righteous before God, and they were truly born again or regenerate. Owen pushes back. I read a hundred and something pages of Owen, mostly on Friday night. Um, and it says, he says this, Here is no express mention of any covenant grace or mercy in them or towards them, nor of any duty of faith or obedience which they had performed. There's no mention of justification, sanctification, or adoption is expressly assigned to them. Yes, so what he's saying is, yes, there is a sense in which they appear to be getting shaped, they appear to be Christians, they're, they're definitely having some sort of uh, um, Christian experiences, but don't overblow this, don't overstay this. They're never called justified, sanctified, adopted children of God. They're never called any of those big, wonderful words which he uses for these Hebrew Christians repeatedly throughout the letter. Verse 6 throws up this big, difficult problem. And it says, It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. And the reason is given, Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Goodness. What does that mean? They cannot be restored to repentance because they're crucifying the Son of God again. If you use this to understand baptism in the Christian life, it becomes a lot easier. The reason these people would be said to be re-crucifying Christ is because in identifying as Christians... They were meant to have shown in their baptism that they had died with Christ and they had now been raised and living in newness of life with Him. The Christian says, my old life is gone, I now live for Christ. Do we agree? That's what baptism pictures. But instead, these people have said, I died with Christ, I lived with Him, but I reject Him. So I want to go back to spiritual death. The idea of re-crucifying Christ again is actually very helpful in showing that they never had true salvation at all. Because as I say, we go from death to life, and then, no, no, I prefer, I prefer death. They're re-crucifying Christ. This is not saying that they can never ever come to Christ and truly be saved from their sin. God never turns away anyone who sincerely comes to him. Can I, I just want to do a really quick show of hands, just in case there's some. How many of you said you were Christians, you abandoned the faith entirely, and then you actually got saved? Any? Yeah. It does happen. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. This is a mouthful. I think what this is saying. This is my best shot. I think what this is, what is being said here, 
is a person who claims to be a Christian, then utterly rejects Christ, is showing such a hardness of heart that in their human condition, they cannot and will not come to repentance because they have never truly come to a place of repentance and true faith in Christ. Repentance is not simply feeling sorrow for sin, but recognizing the need for forgiveness. It requires a change of mind and a turning to Christ alone for forgiveness. Repentance is changing of the mind. That is why repentance and faith must go together. In rejecting Christ, these people show themselves unable to repent. Ligon Duncan helpfully says, The author of Hebrews is drawing a line in the sand and saying, If you turn your back on Christ, you are evidencing such a hardness of heart to what you've already heard and experienced to a certain point, that there's no human power that can change a heart like that. Now, let's come to the illustration in verse 7 and 8. And hopefully, if this is not all making sense to you, it will the light will come on. Let's read the, let's read the illustration. It says, For land that is drunk... The rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay. Still tracking with me? Good. In this illustration we see an explanation that ties together those that have fallen away, and then the Hebrews, who says, goes on to say, are fruitful. That's what he says in verse 9 to 12. Land has soaked up rain that falls on it. Simple. What is this rain and water? We pull out of the Old Testament places like Deuteronomy 32.2. It says, May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. The rain is the word of God and the gospel, or the blessings that God gives for fruitfulness. All the things these people have been said to experience in verses 4 and 5, that they've tasted of, those things, that's the rain. In Zechariah 14.17 it says, The lack of the word and blessing is shown by saying, There shall be no rain on them. So God's saying these people won't have the word, there shall be no rain on them. Right? So it's a, it's a biblical metaphor. How many rains are there? Let's just let's simplify this right down. How many rains are there? One rain, right? How many kinds of harvests are there? Two. How many kinds of land are there? Two. Not one. Two lands. This ties in so well with Jesus' parable of the sower. Let me just read it again, right? 
Mark 4, verses 3 to 9. It says, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed, and some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is an end times element to this whole thing. There is a progress of time. You've got harvest and you've got fruit. How do you for sure find out what kind of ground there was? The rain fell on the same, uh, so the same rain fell on the ground. How do you find out whether it was good ground or bad ground? When the harvest comes. This metaphor of thorn-bearing land really matches, that is is used here in Hebrews 4 to 6. Verses 4 to 6 matches the first three soils of the parable of the sower. Does it not? Matches it. And all this then comes together. There's one set of rain, the blessing of the Word of God, and all that is needed for fruitfulness. There's one rain that falls on two different kinds of land. The good land brings a fruitful harvest. The bad land brings thorns and thistles and things that are part of the curse. One is blessed by God, one is cursed. The illustration then is, for verses 4 to 6, These ones, these ones that are cursed, are like those that fall away. I want to very quickly um, read a quote by John Piper. I'm going to let John Piper sum this all up for me on the illustration. I think he he does so well. The picture is not of a field that had life, and vegetation, and then lost it. Right? Let's just stop there. It's not about a field that had a very good harvest, and then it lost the harvest. Right? What's that a metaphor for? Someone who had salvation, and then lost it. The picture is not of a field that had life and vegetation, and then lost it. The picture is of two different kinds of field. Fields. One is fruitful and blessed, the other is barren and cursed. And I think the point is this. If we have sat in church in the light of the Spirit and the Word and the work of God coming to us and blessing us and even shaping us to some degree, but then we turn our back on it, we are like a field without vegetation and we will come into judgment. The rain we have drunk... The light, the spirit, the word, the powers produced no light, no life in the field. Does that make sense? That illustration really helps understand verses 4 to 6. 
I want to very quickly apply this text to three main views of apostasy and perseverance. Okay? Three main views. There are more, but these are the three main ones. In many churches, they teach that once you pray a sinner's prayer or you make a decision, you are born again, and if you profess faith once, you're saved forever. We call that the once saved, always saved view. We've seen that. And in that once saved, always saved view, there's really no actual chance of apostasy. And some of you have seen this. That someone goes on to live like a complete devil after praying a prayer. Too bad they're saved. Such people that hold to that theology often then come up with two different categories of Christians. There's carnal Christians that live like the world, and then there's spirit-filled Christians that are actually disciples and live under the Lordship of Christ. And so these guys are saved, but these guys are saved, and they live a good life, and so that's fine. Um, and... And the book of Hebrews just destroys that view. Like, apostasy is possible. First John 2.19 They went out from us because they were not of us. Alright? Second view. Alright. Let me make myself unpopular. We have the Wesleyan-Arminian view. Alright? Now, many churches would hold to this in various forms, uh, named after John Wesley, who I would love to meet him one day. He's going to be in heaven. So is Jacob Arminianus. Arminus, the Arminius. See, I can't even say his name. It doesn't come out of my lips. Um, John Wesley was an English evangelist and the founder of the Methodist Church. He was a tremendous evangelist and preacher. His brother Charles Wesley wrote a bunch of hymns that we sing. There are tremendous, tremendous Christians. He's wrong, okay? Um, and then there was a Dutch reformer called Jacob Arminius. And that's where the Arminian view comes from. Wesleyan, Arminian. All right? Wesley denied that once save or always save view that we talked about, but he also denied the reformed view of the perseverance of the saints. That saints will go on and persevere to the end. So in this Wesleyan Arminian view, they say it is possible for someone to have truly believed the gospel, truly being justified by faith in Christ, born again, regenerated, and then lose their salvation and walk away. That's what they say. So the Wesleyan reading of verses 4 to 6 of Hebrews chapter 6 here is that those people that fell away were saved, then they lost their salvation. Okay? However, they also say, that these people can then come back later after falling away and be saved again. So you can be truly saved, then fall away, and then be truly saved again. And then fall away again. And 
I think Spurgeon said it, I think, so, so well. He says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Like, Spurgeon wasn't big on human potential. You know what I'm saying? Um, And what I find so fascinating, because I went to Bible college with a number of dear Wesleyan Methodist brothers, they appeal to Hebrews 6, and I wish I knew what I knew now back, back then, but they appeal to Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 as proof for their view that you can be saved, lose it, be saved again, lose it. And I find that very odd these days. Because this text says that if you have a harvest of thorns... You're cursed by God, and you can't be restored back to fruitfulness because you never were fruitful. Bad soil leads to thorns and thistles. Bad soil does not give fruitfulness and become, it just, it doesn't go from good soil to bad soil back again. It just, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Thirdly, numerous people would agree with this to some form or another, but I'm going to call it the reformed view of perseverance of the saints as outlined in the Westminster Confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, the Belgian Confession, um, the uh, 39 Articles of the Anglican Church. And that view very simply states that those who have been truly regenerated believe in Christ and will persevere to the end and not fall away. You're truly saved. You will make it to the end. Though they may sin, though they may fall into grievous sin, having been truly born again, they will come to a place of repentance and restoration and ultimately decide not to reject Christ. And I appeal to Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, and the illustration in verse 7 and 8 as proof for that view. In addition, Hebrews 3, verse 14 says this, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. we've, We've read that already in Hebrews. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm till the end. It doesn't say we will become partakers of Christ. It doesn't say we are partakers right now just because we're believing. It says we have become, we were and we still are partakers of Christ because we believe the gospel and we will hold it firm to the end. And in Hebrews 10 verse 14, right before the next warning passage, it says this, By one offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you could be justified, saved in Christ, 
you you are justified because of Christ's offering on your behalf. It says you've been perfected and completed in righteousness for all time through his work on the cross. If you can have that and then lose it, that verse would be needs to be cut out of the Bible because it does not make sense. And so as we, we come to the Lord's Supper now, I want to say this. These warnings should not terrify you. They should not terrify you. They should remind us that there is nothing better than the gospel. There is no salvation found anywhere else. God supplies the rain. God blesses the harvest. And if our assurance is based on our choice, you will struggle with doubt for the rest of your life. But if your assurance is based on the recognition of what God has done for you, you see it in the gospel of Christ, you will continue to grow, though life may be hard, until you see him face to face.